0: You are listening to the Evolution Exchange NHS podcast. We shine a light on the topics that matter to digital and data leaders within the NHS. I'm Emma Heath and I help connect digital leaders with interim talent in the NHS and I'm your host. The views expressed by guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect the official position or policy of their organisation Okay, so hello everybody and welcome to today's podcast discussing the topic of being a senior leader in the NHS. I'd just like to take this opportunity to thank you all um, for taking the time out of your busy schedules. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm really excited to listen to your views tonight and we've had some really good questions sent over. Um, So we'll kick things off with some introductions. So I'm Emma and I work on the NHS team at Evolution Recruitment. We are a Crown Commercial Service Framework Supplier who deliver interim digital IT and tech talent into the NHS. Our purpose at Evolution is that we are committed to helping people and NHS organisations realise their potential. There are three key parts to that. Firstly, our goal is to develop deep relationships with individuals, building trust to make doing business easier. Second to that, what we do is collaborate with NHS organisations helping them build high-performing digital teams. And finally, how we do that is through curating and sharing insights into the ever-evolving NHS and digital industry best practice, such as events like this podcast tonight. So that is me. So, Chris, you're first on my screen. So if you could um, introduce yourself, that would be fantastic.
1: All right, thank you, Emma. So my name is Chris Lanigan, and I work for Tees Eskinway Valley Foundation Trust, which is the mental health trust which serves um, County Durham, uh, Teesside, most of North Yorkshire and the City of York. And I am Associate Director of uh, Strategy and Strategic Planning.
0: Thank you very much, Chris. Mark, we'll come to you next.
1: Hi, yes, I'm uh, Mark Nord, I'm
2: Director of Informatics at Sheffield Teaching Hospitals, which does acute and community services in Sheffield and the wider South Yorkshire area. I held a number of similar posts in other acute trusts and mental health. And uh, in the 1980s, I started out as a radiographer. So uh, before PACs,
3: of course.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Mark. Salman, on to you next.
3: Hi, everyone. Yeah, I'm Salman Tahir. I'm the interim deputy CDIO at Bradford Teachings Hospital, NHS Foundation Trust, which is uh, an ac- acute hospital serving the area of Bradford.
0: Thank you very much. And last
4: but not least, Delphine. Uh, Hi everyone, I'm Delphine Fittory. I'm currently the Head of Informatics for Bradford District Care Foundation Trust. That's a community and uh, mental health trust covering um, the whole of Bradford, a bit of North Yorkshire as well. Um, And we're currently covering some uh, children's services in the area of Wakefield.
0: Thank you very much everybody and um, well, we'll just dive straight into the questions i think um so first question to discuss is what are in your views the top three main qualities for a leader so chris i'm not going to pick on you first mark i'm going to to you next uh on this one if that's okay
2: the first question was easy <laughs> <laughs> yes of course of course of course uh, uh okay I- I have given this a little bit of thought today because it, it'll probably depend on my mood at the time. But I, I think, probably not necessarily in order, but I think getting people to believe in your vision. If you can't get people to believe in what you're trying to achieve, then it, it's only going to be uphill and you're not succeeding. And you might drag your organization or your staff there, but you're certainly not going to get them there willingly and, and supportively. Uh, secondly, and I think listening, and I don't just mean listening in terms of individuals. I think as managers, you have to be able to listen to, to your colleagues and staff. But I also think getting a sense for something when you just not got buy-in uh, and not trying to do something that's actually impossible, accepting that, you know, that perhaps your views prevail and getting a feel for the room, getting a feel for the organisation's appetite for something, I would say. And thirdly, I think it's one's quite important is tenacity. I've seen I've worked with and seen some very impressive leaders or apparently impressive leaders in my time, and they, they've got the attributes of good speakers, bring people with them, good listeners. But when they meet difficult organisations and challenging, they, they they don't tend to last long. And I think you've got to stick with it a bit. It, it's easy to come in all guns blazing for a year. But when you actually start to deliver the things you've talked about, it, it becomes harder. So uh they're probably the three that I I
3: think at
0: the minute i may change from my next week uh, probably three key ones thank you Mark
3: and Salmon we'll come round to you next actually I was hoping you wouldn't because mine are very similar to Mark's (laughs) (laughs) sorry (laughs) Salmon. I've written down um, communication multitasking and patience Uh, now obviously communication because my like Mark said, you've really got to be able to articulate um, what it is you're trying to deliver into the organisation and sell the benefits and make sure as wide an audience as possible, understand the benefits and the impact that it is going to have on them and sort of having technical backgrounds. I think Mark and I are really acutely aware of this because we have to translate that technical speak into non-technical speak. So Depending on the audience we have when we're talking to um, boards and executive teams, then we've got to translate it into how it impacts the bottom line. So in a sense, we're talking um, pennies and pounds. And when we're talking to our clinical colleagues, we're talking about the benefit to patient safety, patient care and supporting the objectives within the NHS, such as right patient, right time, right treatment, right place. And you know, IT sort of underpins those things by delivering the right information um, on demand. So communication is very important from that point of view. Multitasking, because there are many dots that senior leaders have to be able to identify and join up. Uh, and I've just seen you all smiling there. I think you know where I'm coming from. Um, there are many projects that go on within an organisation. So we've, we've got to be able to not only be aware of those, but we've got to be able to join the dots very quickly and see where there are joined up benefits or benefits that lead on to another, okay. another dot. Um, and that could work in either direction. And then obviously the patients all the way through doing those things. You've got to be very, very patient and um, similar to what Mark said, you've got to be tenacious, you've got to hang in there. You know, you really have to keep going back and and re delivering your message time and time again if, if needed. So those are my top
0: three. Thank you Salomon um, and Delphine,
4: we'll move on to you next if that's OK. Uh, yeah, similar ones as well around uh, being able to to listen um, the communication and, and also being able to visualise what's what the future looks like, I think it's it's one of the the key one. Um, and then I added empowered uh, people, empower people as well. So just in terms of of uh, listening, and it's more in terms of hearing what people say, but also looking at what they are doing, understanding the services, and it's it's an overall. Um, of view of what services are are delivered how they are delivered and how we can make changes that will support that vision as well uh, going forward Um, in terms of the vision uh, itself and and supporting you know uh, getting people to be part of that vision as well and there there should be an element around co-production in terms of that vision uh, It's not the senior leader uh, one day waking up saying this is what we. What I will be doing, uh, but it's a whole team, um, and by team I just uh, I mean um, the, the people within the team itself, uh, but also the clinical services, um, the patients, the service users. So it should be a, a co-production of that vision, and then being able to kind of communicate back that vision um, to the organisation and to drag everyone as part of that vision as well. But because it's been built. Uh, with input from everyone, with that co-production, it's easier and it's more, more uh, uh, a reason for success than just trying to uh, Im- impose something to the organisation that may not be uh, what the organisation would like to see. I think as well from a, a leadership perspective, being able to empower people, empower staff uh, to make their own decision, um, it helps developing the leaders of the future as well. Um, and I think one of the role of a, of a leader is to be able to prepare for leaders in the future. Uh, because in 20 years time, there will be uh, new people coming in, uh, working in, in, the, in the NHS. And the NHS is, is quite old and I, I believe that there will be many other years in front in front of the NHS and we need to kind of prepare for that as well. So I think empowering people is, is really keen at achieving this.
0: Thank you very much, Delphine. And then, Chris, we're going to move on to you. I actually realised that you got the short straw in having to introduce yourself first. And now I've also given you the short straw and having to go last on this question. So I'm really sorry, but it wasn't intentional. <laughs> that, that,
1: that's OK. And I guess I, I could just say, well, what everybody else said, couldn't <laughs> I? And I think that, uh, in terms of what everybody else said, i particularly pick out that that thing about having a strategic long-term vision. Not necessarily that they create just on their own, but which they co-create um with partners. And I ideally, you know, ch- um achieved recently we 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 recently introduced uh, a new strategic framework that was co-created to service users and carers and with and with staff and with colleagues. It wasn't just the Chief Exec's vision and that that that's made it a lot stronger. Um but I think there's a couple of other things that I'd pick out as well. I think certainly in, in the NHS and possibly more more generally I think leaders have got to realise their job isn't just to manage their organisation it's to actually help the organisation position and be effective in a wider system and so they have to be able to do to impact on the, the many on the one or more systems that their organisation is is part of I think that's that's really important the other thing maybe we haven't focused on quite as much as we could have done is um it's often said a, that if you're a successful leader you'll have a followership. That leaders have followers. And actually, what what is it that really creates that? And I think me fully a lot of it is actually the 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 behave, the, the, the values and behaviours that the leader has. So I I absolutely know that there's more than one model of leadership. So you can have servant leadership or kind of charismatic or kind of big the traditional sort of big man leadership. But but whichever those you're going for, there's there's something about you need to be consistent with your behaviours. So whatever it, whatever it says on the, you know, the your, your organization's kind of thing about values and behaviours, you you as a as a leader need to embody that. It's absolutely fatal if there's a if there's a complete contrast between what it what it what it says on your leadership statements and how you actually behave. And you know, I've worked in other organisations where where that divide has been apparent and it's been really really corrosive. So so I think. Um, that integrity about actually behaving in the way that you've said the organisation should behave. And you, you can do that as a charismatic leader uh, if you want. You can also do it as a kind of servant leader. But being, being consistent, I think, and, and not hypocritical is really, really important. And for me, am I out of bonus one? I think that's um, linked to that. I think it's really important in this modern complex world that, that leaders are open to new learning and also open to people telling them that perhaps they might be getting it wrong. Uh, one, one of my favourite fairy tales is The Emperor's New Clothes, where, you know, the king strides through Copenhagen with wonderful suit on that everyone's told him was absolutely wonderful, but of course it's all nonsense, there is no suit. And it's a little child who says, he's got no clothes on, but in a Danish accent. And um, I think all leader, le- leaders who lead by fear, or perhaps old-fashioned leaders, that's the concept that they get themselves into that. Actually, the very people I need to be telling them when they're getting it wrong, don't dare to do that. And all sorts of dreadful things will happen. So I think I think openness and will, willingness to be wrong, a willingness to be challenged are really, really important leadership qualities as well.
0: Thank you very much, Chris. You did very well then, being last. <laughs> no, thank you. Um, I think that was a really kind of nice question to start, start off with. So thank you, everybody. Um, so we'll move on to the second question now. So that was, do senior leaders in the NHS need technical experience slash practical experience, or is strategic experience enough? So Salman, we're going to come round to you first on this one.
3: Uh, That's quite an interesting one. This opens up quite a a, a big conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, This is my first role in the NHS. I have been told I've got about 12 years in, in healthcare overseas. And coming into the NHS, I brought a lot of strategic um, experience with me, gained in other organizations. But the culture shock was massive. Uh, the way that the NHS is structured, the, the, the different uh, paymasters that we have, the different regulators that we have. Um, the amount of regulation that we have um, is, um, I think, a, a amongst the, the the most I've ever seen anywhere. So although I've been able to bring a lot of strategic experience and adapt very quickly to how the organisation is structured, um, the practical and technical experience I've had of healthcare has helped an awful lot. So my short answer is Really, having posed the question to start with, I think you need a mix of all all of those things. There, there's no, it's not a yes/no type um, answer to this particular question, and I think you you really need to have a good mix and a good grounding in um, in healthcare, and you probably need a good grounding in the NHS as well. And um, this year has been tough enough without having to learn about how the NHS works, so. That's how I see it, and depending on what everybody else has to say, I've I've probably got a few more comments as well.
0: Thank you, Salman. Um, Delphine, we'll come round to you next.
4: Yeah, very interesting question, Salman. And um, we, well, I met Chris 12 years ago as part of a a programme called uh, Gateway to Leadership, and that's because both Chris and myself came from outside the NHS and that leadership programme enabled us to learn about the NHS, how it worked. Uh, and uh, it was a, an 18-month uh, programme as well with different modules. And uh, that helped me um, a lot really to kind of be able to, to do my role uh, at the time, uh, which was as well a senior role as the head of service. Um, I understand, Selman, where, where you're coming from as well, not having had probably that type of support um, as well. So for me as well, in terms of having a mixed experience around technical and, and strategic, uh, it's it's best. Um, however, I would say it depends of the role you are in as well. Uh, some people would be recruited at a very strategic level and therefore Understanding the technical element might not be relevant, uh, but I think there is more of an acceptance if somebody has some expertise, some technical expertise, associated to to the role, or, or to be maybe more accepted as well within within the team, or being uh, more able to articulate or communicate with them as well. Uh, and I think it's it's quite helpful to to be able to have that and and being able to can communicate with with everyone within the organization and having an area of expertise technically is is quite helpful
0: thank you delphine um chris moving on to you yeah
1: and as i say along with delphine i did that 18 month course and some of that was was useful i i i, I guess Anyone who comes in from outside NHS will bring some technical skills with them, even even if the skills of the kind of skills that go with strategy roles and sort of analysis or facilitation or just just logical uh, logical conceptual sequential thinking. So every, everybody will bring something. And actually, uh, when I came from local government, and what I discovered when I came into NHS was that actually the the knowledge in the NHS about how local politics works was actually nowhere near where I thought it would be. Uh, and that I was actually, you know, and, and also I've done a lot of public engagement uh, in my local council roles. And actually though and did project management knows in a previous role at the audit commission, those were actually all skills that the knowledge at NHS where I was working didn't really have and found quite useful, I suppose. But at the same time, Mr. How 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 do you translate those previous skills and experiences into into what's going to be useful in the NHS and I do think there's something about about understanding what the clinical frontline job is and there's different ways of of doing that Um, I mean clearly I think it depends who you are and and where you're working so in 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 some places it might be it might be appropriate it's like you know go and do a frontline job for a couple of days. In in mental health, it's often very difficult because you don't really want people like me wandering around the inpatient wards at random. That's not really a very good idea. But I do remember I organised a couple of days out with our community. So I spent a day out with one of our crisis intensive home treatment teams uh, going and doing home visits. And it was just a really interesting insight into you know, what, what, what does someone who's ill enough to have just come out of hospital actually look and feel like and what kind of questions are the crisis team asking and when they're doing those sort of post discharge follow-ups and also what, what the team's saying to each other in the car between the visits. That was all really, really interesting. You know, I got an awful lot from that. I also actually did quite a lot of um, quality improvement reviews where I was sort of sent to go and kind of map what was going on in services and then work with them to improve. So, so I think coming in from outside, you need to get an understanding about how what the front line does and why it does it. But I think there's there's different ways of getting that, which which will be, you know, it depends what organization you're in, what kind of person you are. But yeah, I do I do think people need to get that understanding just, just so they can understand how to make the most of their outside skills. Um that, that 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 they're bringing in, I think really. So I think you know, the NHS definitely benefits from people coming from outside. Um, you know, we 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 do bring different perspectives, different skills. I don't think we should I don't think we, we should be embarrassed that we haven't worked for NHS for our entire careers. I think we should actually say that, you know what, perhaps that might be a good thing. Um, so with that challenging note, I'm going <laughs> to hand it back to you, Emma.
0: Thank you, Chris. Um, well, Mark, we'll come round to your thoughts on this. I think considering kind of the way that the conversation's gone, gone. sorry, um interested to hear your thoughts because you've you know had a long career in the NHS. So I think your perspective will be quite interesting. So what what do you think? You're
2: on, you're on. Oh. Oh, the, the dog was barking. Um, <laughs> I don't think you want that on. He's got a horrible bark. Um, yeah, I, I haven't just worked in the NHS. I, I, I've worked uh, in the private sector in software development for quite a while, about 15 years. So I've worked in and out at the NHS. Uh, I suppose the first thing I'd say to Salban is just because you've worked at one trust, don't think it's anywhere like the same in any other trust. <laughs> I've mean, worked it a lot. Um, i have working at Sheffield t- teaching hospitals for, for two years now, and it, it's quite different from where I worked previously, which is Derby and Burton and uh, a number of other places. And I've worked nationally and I've worked for commissioners and it, it's completely different. I think the generic stuff around commissioning and the way the money's paid and the politics at the Department of Health all permeates down the same. But the way people do it and deliver it is, is quite different. Um, and, and um, as, I think having a mix of people who really understand the NHS and life, uh, life builds in it and people that are coming outside ideas is, is perfect. Uh, my own discipline, which is, is information technology and business analysis type stuff, which is most of my senior roles have been in that area. Um, I think technical expertise in those areas is, is is a significant advantage. I think where we've seen leaders work, at the sort of CIO, CEO, whatever you want to call it, role who haven't got much technical background, sometimes realise they run an operational service and they might be able to set a great strategy. But if if Mr. Bloggs, the orthopaedic surgeon's computers aren't working, you'll know about it. Um, And and that was a quote really from from someone that was uh, that was uh, there was the CIOs, a very large acute trust um, uh, and he was excellent as as, as, a strategist, but just struggled with really getting to grips with the the operational challenges the organisation had, uh, as we all have, to be frank, you know, particularly large, large acute trust, because when something is wrong, you know about it within seconds. Um, I think, particularly in IT, having technical knowledge, but not NHS knowledge is not really a particular problem. I think it's slightly harder when you get higher up because of the politics and the way the NHS works and having to understand. I mean, sometimes you need to let them understand that actually there are patients at the end of this and things we do can affect their safety. But apart from that, the technology is very similar. Um, So I'd argue, certainly in my own area of expertise, that having some. Domain knowledge in terms of the IT is useful and probably necessary to some extent, but having knowledge of the NHS is less so. Um, but, uh, you know, even within IT, there's lots of domains of knowledge. Software development is very different from service support and stuff. So, you know, you can have transferable skills. I mean, I've had the advantage of being clinical from start. I've always found it easy to navigate with our clinical colleagues because I know a lot of terminology. <laughs> Some of it is even in use in the 80s. And I've worked in mental health, I've worked in primary care support, and I kind of see things from all, all areas. But uh, so I don't really really answer the question. So
3: I suppose the answer is generally yes, but not (laughs) exclusively so. (laughs) Thank you, Mark. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, there's a lot of dependency there, which particular role Mm. and which sort of domain and and, and sphere of influence you're you're in. Um, So that all of those ingredients need to be there, but in lesser or greater extents, um, I think. Um, Yeah. I think a medical director would struggle if they
2: worked in the NHS because it's very different from private right, hospitals. <laughs> very different.
3: Without yeah.
0: Without well, thank you, guys. And um, so we'll move on to the third question then. Um, so that is how should senior leaders balance the priorities of service users, staff and external partners? So Delphine, we'll come round to you first on this one.
4: Well, I think the priority is always and should always be the patients, the service users and their carer. Um, Then it's how do we do that? Uh, We can do that directly and clinical teams can do that directly. Working in a bit in the kind of support uh, functions. uh, We do that indirectly. So we support a lot of our staff. Uh, We are engaged with a lot of our partners with our suppliers, uh, but ultimately the aim is supporting staff for them to support our our service users and our our patient. So I wouldn't define that as a balance, I think in terms of the priorities, there's just one priority, uh, but we can do that directly or indirectly. Um, The support function, it's it's indirect. Um, There are a number of um, things that we can put into place, in particular with suppliers making sure that we have the right contracts into place, the best value for money, um, the service level agreement uh, in place as well uh, to support that, and probably supporting our staff in the best way, with the right equipment, with the right processes, and with the right support as and when they need it. Um, and the NHS is 24-7 as well, so we need to kind of make sure all of this is in place and we balance all of this 24 uh, seven, which is always a, a bit of a challenge. Um, so that's that's how I kind of would say that it's not really a balance, but there is one priority and that's how we get to that priority. Thank you, Delphine and um, Chris, what are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, well, this question makes me smile because. The stock answer would be, well, you go and refer to your strategy, but Chief's strategy says it has three goals. And goal one is to co-create an excellent experience for service users and carers. And goal two is to co-create an excellent experience for staff or co- well, colleagues, as we call it. And goal three is to be a great partner. So <laughs> actually, OK, how do you choose between the three? And I suppose my... My view is that a lot of the time, actually, the three are not going to be in conflict, even when they appear to be. So where you have knotty problems and, for example, um, I know one of the issues at CHUV has been, for example, should uh, should um, service users be able to record covertly or overtly their interactions with clinicians? And I'm told this has been very, very controversial that... There's a very different view on the service user side to what was on the the clinician side but in fact often with good facilitation and the right environment you can talk these things through and often actually sometimes there actually will be a consensus that emerges i'm not saying that will happen all the time but also again my my experience in local government was actually when you put opposing groups together and you know i remember doing some stuff around uh, what was going to happen to an old school where there were various stakeholders ra- ra- ranging from the voluntary sector people who were there, um, some of the businesses around the corner, the local residents group, initially they all appeared to have very diverse and converging and uh, sorry uh, d- diverse and opposing uh, views about things but actually once she got them talking it started to emerge that actually there probably was a compromise that everybody would be happy with and you know I remember in that experience that you know we, we, we managed to broker that compromise in fact fifteen years later, everyone in the area is happy with with what, what happened. There's a, a thriving voluntary sector, there's an old, there's a elderly care centre, but the new houses that the residents were really worried about didn't actually get built. So actually everybody ended up being relatively happy. And I think that's that that's it. We just I think rather rather than trying to pretend that these opposing views don't exist, I think I think it's better to get people in, inside the tent, not outside the tent, get them talking, get them to understand where these views are coming from, how, you know, how service users and carers need to understand why is it that some of our clinicians are so worried about being recorded, but why like are uh, our, our clinicians need to understand why is it service users and carers want to have a record of what was actually said, and if we can start building build, build some mutual understanding between groups, it may actually be that you, you come to a point where actually people go, well, you know, if that's important to you, actually, you know what, we can live with it or we can live with that as long as you don't do that with it or that we have this safeguard in place and then actually then you can move forward. So I think I think it's best to acknowledge these, these conflicts and create the right space to discuss them and then move on. Uh, now, very occasionally, you'll have to make a choice and My heart says you go with what the service users and carers need. But my head says that sometimes without any staff, we don't have any service. So there is something about you have got to understand your staff and understand what's driving them away. But actually, step one is, is rather than making a choice, actually get people together, have a conversation, facilitate conversation and try and broker something that everybody can live with. Perfect. Thank you,
0: Chris. Thank you. Um, Mark,
2: we'll come to you next. Yeah, um, I suppose it depends on circumstance. So if I've got an acute emergency like our networks down, for example, and nobody can work, the first thing I'm worried about is patient safety. So a hierarchy of concerns <laughs> First thing, patient safety. Second thing is, is it, you know, if we've got that solved, then are we able to run all operations, are staff able to do the jobs and that? And then I worry about what people like commissioners and regulators and others think about our reporting and stuff later. And and then that's that's I think it's a obvious hierarchy. I think more generally, though, in a longer term, you've got to focus on the other things. If you don't focus on your staff sufficiently, you'll have big turnover. You won't be able to recruit. It will impact on services and impacts on patients. And if you don't work, particularly with partners, and I think particularly thinking about neighbouring trusts and GPs and um, community and mental health providers where we have you know, considerable overlapping responsibilities and dependencies on each other, then you're just making things worse in the long term in that area. And I'm kind of going to bleed a little bit onto your final question, I suppose, about the ICS, because this is a challenge that we we sit around in our ICS meetings discussing stuff and we have a number of ICS priorities. But ultimately, we go back to our desks and tend to focus on the things that we are having to do locally because we are statutory organisations and we're held accountable for what we do. We're held accountable for what we do as a group, but not as strictly, if that makes sense. Your CQC doesn't come and investigate the system, they can investigate the individual organisations. So, you know, our CQC actions, having recently had an inspection, our requirements around balancing our own budget, I'm naturally going to come first. So, but it's still trying to ensure that we're engaging and working with people because some of these things are only sustainable if we work together, particularly around the you know, catch up from COVID, um, which we're all going to be we're all faced with, aren't we? That we need to look at the way services work across the system, make them work better, make them work more flexibly across all the organizations in our area. And we're only going to get that by working together. So there's a willingness to do it. I just think sometimes the levers are wrong. And the levers encourage us to go back to our desk and do our day job because that's what we'll be told of if we don't do it. I know I'm putting it very crudely there, but that's what you know the regulators hold chief execs and therefore ourselves accountable for. So I, I think it depends on context, but I, I think I agree absolutely that all three are equally important, you know, over any meaningful time
0: frame. Thank you, Mark. Simon, I can see you nodding your head along a little bit there. What do you think?
3: Yes, I am broadly speaking. I'm in agreement with everything that, that's been said. And um, again, this is a very con- contextual sort of question because in any given context and situation, the, the needs and requirements of those stakeholders will come in a different order. I mean, by and large, Delphine is absolutely right when she says the patient always comes first so as a start point in any given situation the patient comes first and then because they are serving the patient directly it's the frontline staff um, that, that come next and then staff in this context would mean the staff that are providing that service to the service users and the frontline staff so it, it's kind of like a hierarchy or a pyramid and the selection of external partners always ought to be a strategic decision anyway because they're providing something if they're providing a service it's because we don't have that particular resource capability so the external provider should always be aligned to our needs and our requirements and we should be enabling them to provide that to us very easily um so if we always start with okay patient and then the um, the service users or frontline staff and then the needs of those the you know the, the back office staff and then the external partners if it, that's where we ought to start and that's where we ought to be looking at in that hierarchy but then as everybody else has said those priorities will compete with each other depending on the context that's how i see it and um, and I think, to be honest, there are many external service providers who would take advantage of our good nature and see the NHS as a cash cow and perhaps try and take advantage of the situation. And, you know, I've, I've been here since last September and I've had to put a few providers in their place and remind them that they are they are service providers and they ought to be working to our deadlines in order to, for us to enable the other three layers on top of them, you know, our staff and then the frontline users, and therefore the the patient at the end. Um, so yeah, it's all very contextual, and and this goes back to uh, an earlier point on the first question. You know, this is part of the multitasking. So you, you've got to be able to bounce really quickly between situations in any given context, and. Um, Believe it or not, when I joined last September, I didn't have any grey hair at all. And and now, you know, it's all grey and half gone. (laughs) I should be so lucky. (laughs) (laughs) I've got got, got, my foot right in it there.
2: I suppose we we taken a slightly different take up partners because you were thinking of suppliers in the main. I was thinking of neighbouring trusts and things where you've got a codependency. Because yeah. if, say, for example, Rotherham, which is very close, its uh, ED department failed because we weren't able to help them, then would they all come to us and, yeah, and we provide lots right. of services yeah. across all those other trusts? So you are be absolutely right with, with external partners in terms of suppliers. They yeah. do sometimes think they hold the whip hands. We, yeah, we're not the customer and uh, that's, I think that's the point Well, made.
3: Yeah, but you're absolutely right about the uh, the partners being other trusts as well. I'm um, spot on. And again, that just sort of demonstrates the contextual nature of any given situation we're in, H- who are the stakeholders? What are, you know, are they an external partner? Are they another trust? Are they, could they, they could be um, a government organisation? You know, who are they uh, and what is that situation all about? So the the needs uh, then go into as as Chris said, you know, you've you've got to talk to them. You've got to tease everything out. You've got to try and reach that cons- that point where you've got the consensus and everybody is lined up on the focused issue. And if you're a mental health trust,
2: obviously local authorities and social care organisations are absolute critical partner because
3: you're working hand in glove with them, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely spot on. So yeah, that uh, I think between us, we, we're kind of Given a good answer and quite a strong answer to that one. Yeah, no,
0: perfect. That,
3: that, that there's always a lot to consider, and you know, we, that, that's why people in the NHS suffer a lot of burnout. I think the, the burnout rate in the NHS is amongst the highest in any organisation in in the UK. And you know that that's particularly come to the front during the pandemic, when an awful lot of people were were uh, just burning out, and we we just didn't have enough resource to cope. Uh, with the additional burdens placed on us by the pandemic, and then you know, Brexit, and now the Ukraine situation—never
0: so. ended. <laughs>
3: yeah, I dread to think what's coming next.
0: <laughs> Let's not think about it. Let's not think about
3: it. Absolutely. <laughs> All
0: right. so thank you guys for that one. So we've got about 15 minutes left, um, so we'll move on to the, the you know the next question. If we do get time, we'll we'll go on to the the fifth one. Um, so fourth question is. What are the challenges in balancing cyber security with the impact on clinical staff? So, Mark, I'm going to pick on you first for this one.
2: Yeah, we could probably widen it actually, and say any technical imperative, really, where we're required to take systems down or force everyone to reboot the PCs. And the reason I brought this up is I was presenting to board I'm doing the, my quarterly cyber report to them and I was just appreciating just recently the last few years how many more patches and updates to operating systems we have to apply than we probably did five years ago and some software companies I think are deliberately making their products supportable for a shorter period so you're forced to buy the newer ones Um, I would suggest um, and putting staff through that endless pain you know there's no doubt about it you know 24 7 services having to reboot PC and ED, even if it's on the virtual environment, is still an absolute pain in the backside when every minute counts. Um, But at the same time, the risks that we face are very real. And I think people appreciate that. And and I was just apologising really to the board and saying, I'm sorry, we have to do this. And, you know, and we do try and mitigate it. We do try and take a bit longer to test stuff because often things will be released then suddenly your system stopped working because we haven't had time to test it properly so we're, we're supposed to do things within 14 days of the patch being released but we don't we need to make sure absolute works first um, and it's just looking at what you can do to mitigate the effects so typically we would for example look at whether we schedule the ED work when we put staff on, in, on site in ED in a quiet time maybe midday or something uh, and actually help them do it. Um, Whereas most admin users in other areas, we'd probably just force it through and just say we haven't got enough staff to do everywhere. It's inconvenient, but it's probably not going to threaten the patient experience. But it's a real challenge. And I do we have a a group called Clinical Decision Group, which is uh, mainly consultants, but some some senior nurses and other senior clinical staff where we talk about these things. And they're very nice and they don't give me too much of a hard time, but they do say, why do you have to reboot it? Why do you have to do that? And it's, I don't know where the balance sits because I might, you know, we we do offer some latitude. We try and be a bit more friendly to users and not force things through and try and be more flexible, try and make sure we test up the nth degree to make sure stuff doesn't fail. But, you know, if I get bitten by a cyber attack because I've left too long, maybe I've got the balance right. So you don't know the right balance till afterwards. But so I'm just mentioning other people's thoughts, because it's uh, it's forefront to my mind and I suspect a severe cyber attack is probably the quickest way I'll, I'll be retiring early. <laughs>
0: Thanks, Mark. Um, Chris, will come round to you next.
1: So um, obviously, I'm the non-IT person in this podcast, but on the other hand, I also work in a region where one of our local authorities lost its entire uh, IT system due to a ransomware attack. Uh, and although I know they've, they've signed their non-disclosure agreements, it took a lot of government money to dig them out of the hole, and they, they had to go. They had to go back to using paper for a few weeks, and it just goes to show how vulnerable we all we all could be. Uh, my my trust has been lucky that we've 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 we if like we've survived the major attacks so far. And I, the other thing, I, I I don't know how how big the wide awareness is of of, of the sheer volume and complexity of attacks. I know. All of the other people on this call will, will know that but I'm not sure if like the, the general public or even the general NHS managers appreciate how hard IT departments haven't to worked to, to fend this stuff off I just don't know if that appreciation is there um so um I know I know, I know obviously there's issues around think things like um you know how many you know one of the things that clinicians love is that you can now use basically the same path that you have single sign on password systems but actually and we keep on with that you know because there's, there's some vulnerabilities about that isn't there so, so there's lots of technical stuff but I suppose one thing i would say is that one of the real advances that certainly our trust made during COVID was the realism that people that some people actually could work from home and uh, we at the very least will have hybrid working going forward now i know there are some more traditional trusts that insist on dragging if you like, admin and clerical people and managers into offices, even during the height of the pandemic. And I would be really upset if the threat of cyber of of, of cyber attacks was used as an excuse by old-style command and control managers to insist that everybody's got to come into a physical office somewhere. I think that would be a massively missed opportunity for the NHS in terms of increasing people's productivity for hybrid working and frankly, also reducing estate costs as well. So I really hope that cyber the threat at the risk of cyber isn't used as an excuse to go about. it's always working.
0: Thank you, Chris. Um, Salman, we'll come round to you next.
3: Thanks. Yeah, good answer, Chris, um, particularly qu- qualifying at the beginning as you did that you're a non-IT user. Um, I think to um, not egg the pudding, I'm going to sort of uh, adopt a, a top three approach um, in answering this. So I think the biggest challenge is um facing cybersecurity with the impact on clinical staff are uh, timing adoption and discipline um timing because patient care never takes a rest it, it it never ends it never stops so asking clinical staff to down tools while we we perform a what we would call a routine patch or upgrade is very very difficult and understandably upsets them because it interrupts their patient care. And, um, you know, it, it's just trying to find those quiet times and negotiate with them. When is your quietest time, um, when is it going to have <clears throat> the least impact on, on the care that you provide? And then that sort of moves on to adoption is, OK, having agreed a slot where we can perform some either cyber security upgrades patches or whatever it there's also an amount of training involved in that as well so when can we arrange another time <clears throat> to take these you know the the um the, the clinical staff off the ward so that we can actually train them in the usage of uh, what and make them aware of good habits you know how to stay safe because it's not you know cyber security isn't only about um securing the perimeter of the network and then securing the uh uh, privileges uh, within a a system it's about enforcing good habits so people ought to be aware that I've got to be looking out for this in an email message can I differentiate between a genuine email and a phishing email can I differentiate between an authentic website and a fake website can I authenticate between you know all these various other risks will I automatically know if I'm allowed to share information with this person that person This organization, that organization. So you know, there's again, there's huge context to this. um, You know, which part of cybersecurity that we're looking at, and then obviously the discipline. Once we've you know put the patches in place, once we've given them the training and awareness, it's about instilling those good habits and those good practices. You know, cyber security isn't really a function as much as it is a responsibility. And it's a responsibility for absolutely everybody, but it is led ultimately by the cybersecurity team. And they and then this goes back to I sound like stuck record. This goes back to the, the first question that was asked. It's about communication, patience, and multitasking. We've got to be able to do all of those things. And that's um, you know, so it kind of completes the circle there. You know, we're we're doing these things all of the time. So um, that's where I stand on that. That particular issue um, is that timing, adoption and discipline are, are the the major challenges um, in balancing cybersecurity with the uh, the impact it has on the clinical staff and the care that they provide.
0: Thank you, Salomon. And then last but not least Delphine.
4: Yeah, I think um, the wanna cry. Uh, attack in in May 2017 has been a a trigger within the NHS to kind of focus on information security, cyber security. Uh, It has some long lasting impact. Everybody who were there at the time can remember uh, that moment when it happened, moving back to BCP uh, if needed. Um, So that's really... uh, Something triggers something within the wider NHS from a funding perspective. From a standard perspective as well, that's when the cyber essential plus were first mentioned uh, for an HS organization to adopt. Um, it was recognized that a number of organizations were using old uh, legacy and supported system. It might still be the case, but a very small level now, due to the investment that. Um, could happen since then um, and I think that was a, an opportunity I suppose from NH- for NHS organisation to be able to step up their cyber security posture in particular with dedicated resources uh, because IT staff are not security they are not cyber staff uh, a lot of them were doing security as part of their role but not really having the skills Expertise and knowledge to be able to do that and to be able to do that consistently, um, but more asked to deliver operationally things. Um, so I think that was a, a good opportunity to get those um, advice, uh, those expertise um, in in within the organisation. Um, NHSD, uh, NHS Digital as well have been uh, supporting organisations through training package and other things. Um, And it's to kind of be able to build on on that as well. Uh, I think within our trust we have the chance of having um, only limited number of uh, electronic patient record systems. Uh, That's not the case in others. Um, When you have many systems to manage, it's more difficult. Um, So I think a a rationalisation of system is one of the things to, to be doing, to be looking at. Uh, less system you have to manage and less risk you have to manage as well. Um, I think engaging with partners as well, suppliers um, and other partners within the locality or, or, or people you are working with, because you would be weak if your partner is weak as well. Uh, in the same way as you know the, the highest you know weakness within cybersecurity is staffing and therefore as Salman said that the training is key as part of that, so it's kind of plugging all those holes and doing this consistently and support others as well to kind of do that um, and and to be able to uh, react very quickly to some of the alerts uh, that we that we can get as well, but yeah I I think training is is one of the requirements that may take time from a, a clinical perspective and why do we need to be trained? Why is it important? Well, I think we don't want to live again a, a wanna cry experience, and we need to learn from it. Um and there will always be some cybersecurity incident is how do we manage them uh, better and how do we manage them better together?
0: Thank you very much, Delphine. Um I mean, I think I mean I think we're coming to the end of the podcast now. I'd love to move on to the to the fifth question, but I appreciate that I've already taken up some of your time so I'm not gonna not gonna go on to that maybe it's um for thought maybe we could do a second podcast and that could be the first question but um no I just want to say wow I feel very privileged tonight to have been able to kind of provide you with this platform to not only just share your thoughts with one another but hopefully make some new connections um I've I've really enjoyed the podcast I've learned I've learned a lot myself um and I promise I don't say this on every single one but this has definitely been my favorite uh, so,
2: yeah, again, that's a massive thank you guys and I hope I hope you've all enjoyed it. Yeah, thank definitely. I mean, I mean, thank you. just to say to Chris, because you know, he made a very good point about hybrid work in the future, which is maybe a future subject, actually. Yeah. yeah. But I absolutely agree with him. We had over two and a half thousand concurrent remote connections out of eighteen thousand staff. It's a huge number that we and we're still over a thousand now, and it would be madness with the current pressure to try and revert back to where we were before. So there's perhaps been some beneficial things that come from it, and I think that may be a future topic that uh, many mm-hmm. uh, of us would be interested in talking about. And, and lovely to meet you all.